Our sermon text today comes from Psalm 78, verses 1 through 7. This is a mascal of Asaph. Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old, things that we have heard and known, that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and His might and the wonders that He has done. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which He commanded our fathers to teach their children, that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children, so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep His commandments. The Word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Open our ears, O Lord, to hear Your Word and know Your voice. Speak to our hearts and strengthen our wills, that we may serve You today, now and always. Amen. Our text this morning begins by telling us that it is a masculine of Asaph. Now, masculine is most likely a liturgical term referring to the style of this particular psalm and how it was, it, and it was designed for, for worship and instruction. In this case, Psalm 78 was likely intended to be read aloud in the assembly with the worship leader reading a section and then the congregation responding with the next section. Of course, here at St. Mark, we're used to this call and response style. We do it every week, and it's extremely beneficial for our understanding of God's Word. So now we know what a masculine is, but who was Asaph? Well, the Bible gives us a little detail about this man. Obviously, he wrote Psalms, not as many as David, but he did write 12 of them. Psalm 50, and then he wrote Psalm 73 through 83. First Chronicles 6 introduces us to Asaph. In verse 31, we're told that David placed certain men in charge of the service of song in the house of the Lord. These men were the house of Levi. At the center was the singer He-Man. This is not the He-Man that Pastor Thacker was talking about two weeks ago. This is a different, different guy. Um... But on his left hand was his brother Ethan, and standing at his right hand was his brother Asaph. First Chronicles 15 confirms that these three men, He-Man, Ethan, and Asaph, along with their sons, were indeed the chief musicians and singers appointed by David to raise sounds of joy before the Ark of the Covenant when it was brought back into the tabernacle. Second Chronicles 5.12 tells us that Asaph performed at the dedication of Solomon's temple. And so the point of this little biographical lesson is to highlight that Asaph has seen some things. Given that he had sons when he was appointed by David at the beginning of his reign, Asaph had witnessed at least the second half of Saul's reign and all of its wickedness, David's 40 years of rule, including the Bathsheba incident, all the problems with his sons, Amnon and Absalom, and the census that led to God's judgment on Israel, and then on into Solomon's reign, which began with promise and then deteriorated into excessive wickedness and corruption too. 
So like I said, Asaph saw some things, awful things. Things that are referenced again and again throughout his 12 Psalms, including Psalm 78. In fact, while our text this morning only covers the first seven verses, it's helpful to know that this psalm is 72 verses long. It's a doozy. And the majority of it is full of references to Israel's history and their constant rebellion against God in the face of His blessings and mighty acts on their behalf. It's an amazing psalm. Asaph begins in Egypt and then traces Israel's history sin by sin to the reign of David. Here is an excerpt beginning with verse 11. They forgot his works and the wonders that he had shown them. In the sight of their fathers, he performed wonders in the land of Egypt and the fields of Zoan. He divided the sea and let them pass through it and made the waters stand like a heap. In the daytime, he led them with a cloud and all the night with a fiery light. He split rocks in the wilderness and gave them drink abundantly as from the deep. He made streams come out of the rock and caused waters to flow down like rivers. Yet they sinned still more against him, rebelling against the Most High in the desert. And on and on it goes. God miraculously saves them. They quickly forget and they rebel against him. He judges them for their sin. They repent. He miraculously rescues them. They rebel. Asaph has seen this up close say 60 years or so of his life, he had seen this. It was, and this is a microcosm of this 480-year period from, from Exodus to David that he has put to music. So before I return my focus back to the first seven verses of, of this psalm, I have a couple of observations I want to make about the psalm as a whole. So first, remember that Asaph wrote this as a masculine. This history of Israel's sins in the face of God's mighty deeds, was meant to be sung by Israel responsibly. And so while we don't know the exact pattern of this responsive singing, it's not hard to imagine that the worship leader might lead with God's blessings and that the congregation would respond with the details of their rebellion. This is not exactly the kind of music you hear on Caleb, right? Um But the point was not just to rub their faces in it. It's about leading them to repentance. In our recent Sunday school lessons on Acts, we discussed how the main three sermons in the book, Peter's in Acts 2, then Stephen's in Acts 7, and then Paul's in Acts 13, are directed to the men of Israel and recount their history of Israel and their repeated wickedness in the light of God's blessing to them. And these sermons shook the world. Either the hearts of these Israelites were softened towards repentance and salvation, or their hearts were hardened toward death. And Asaph's psalm serves a similar purpose. Recently, I was able to attend a screening of the 2011 film, The Tree of Life, and then it was followed by a discussion. For those not familiar with the film, it follows the life of a young boy growing up in Texas in the 50s, and then as well later in, throughout the movie, his life as an adult, as he reflects on these moments of childhood that, and these moments that made him who he is, which includes a harsh and discipline, you know, hard disciplinary father. So during the discussion, someone mentioned how much they hated the father character because he was so hard on his kids. 
But I responded that I liked him because it is, first of all, it's such a well-drawn character that he is relatable to me as a father myself, warts and all. And that seeing a character like that on the screen, or you could say in a book or, or, or any kind of way you observe it, but for me, seeing it on the screen, screen serves as a reminder of the type of father I don't want to be, and that spurs me to be better. And I think this is partly the intent of Asaph's song. It reminded them of the sins of their fathers, causing them to reflect on their own sins, and then hopefully driving them towards repentance and righteousness. And of course, it serves a similar function for us today when we read it. Paul tells us in Galatians that in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. So as the church, Israel's story, what we read in Psalm 78, is, is also our story. Israel's sins are our sins. And God's mighty works, which culminate in the death, resurrection, and ascension of His Son, is for our salvation. So we can read Psalm 78 and recognize ourselves in the story and then respond accordingly. And the right way to respond is found in the first seven verses of the psalm. Step one is found in verse one. Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. Excuse me. I think sometimes that the church can easily skip over this command to hear and then interpret it as read or perhaps hear on your audio book. And those things are good, of course. But the command to hear in this instance and throughout Scripture is a liturgical term. It's a call to come and hear the word of God spoken to you. It's instruction from Asaph. He begins as a worship leader telling the people of God to gather together and listen, to receive instruction. This is a call to submission. In our modern world, where natural rights and, and Lockean equality has morphed into to stark individualism, and the belief that we ought to be able to do whatever we want to do with our bodies, which, of course, leads to us telling, you know, what people should do with their bodies, right? Um, well, in this culture where the greatest commandment is, thou shalt not tell me what to do, submission to the Word of God is the perfect remedy. We need to remind ourselves regularly that we are not our own, that we are bought with a price, and we do that by submitting to our Lord in His Word, by gathering with the body and hearing and receiving its instruction from those who are called to deliver it. Asaph describes this instruction in verse 2. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old. Now, dark sayings doesn't mean foreboding or spooky. It's referring to the fact that it's hard to understand. And there are two reasons for this, I think. First, there is a sense 
in which the Old Testament law was difficult to understand and only became clear when it was revealed in Jesus. In fact, Jesus quotes this very verse in the middle of Matthew 13, which is in the midst of all these parables that Jesus tells regarding the kingdom of God. You see, Jesus is following in the footsteps of Asaph. But as the hope, he is the hope that Asaph ultimately points to. Here are the final three verses of Psalm 78. This is verses 70 through 72. He chose David his servant and took him from the sheepfolds. From following the nursing ewes, he brought him to shepherd Jacob his people, Israel his inheritance. With upright heart, he shepherded them and guided them with his skillful hand. This psalm ends with God giving Israel a good shepherd, King David. Jesus, now quoting these verses, is revealing himself to Israel as the son of David, the great shepherd. When his disciples ask him, when Jesus' disciples ask him to explain the parable of the weeds, Jesus replies, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. If the Israelites had listened to Asaph and his instruction, they would have been better prepared for their Messiah. They would have understood who Jesus was. And this is the second reason why Asaph's sayings are dark, because the Israelites were unfamiliar with it. Because Israel did not heed the word of God, because Israel chased after idols and forgot the works of God, then the law of God was foreign to them. In 2 Kings, we even have the story of King Josiah sending his priests to the sanctuary to count money and discovering the book of the law in the house of the Lord. Can you imagine the people of God forgetting the word of God, not even knowing that there there was one? Yet that is very similar to what we see today, isn't it? Yesterday morning, I read an article about a landlord who denied an unmarried couple a lease on a rental house. And the reason was that the couple identified themselves as Christian. And so the landlord, attempting to live out his Christian beliefs, replied to their application with Scripture, telling them that what they were doing was sinful and that he could not in good conscience, for his sake and theirs, rent them the home. And the couple's response was very much like many of the comments under the article. How dare this man judge me? How unloving This is not how Jesus taught us to treat others. Of course, we see this kind of response on a regular basis regarding issues that ought to be obvious to Christians. Unfortunately, even from pastors and leaders in the church. How dare you tell somebody what to do with their body? Who are you to tell me what my identity is? Love is love. God made me this way. You know, God's word is very clear on these issues. And it's only difficult to comprehend them if you ignore it and rebel against it. And this leads to step two. If step one is come to church and submit to the hearing of God's word, then step two is to teach it to your children. Here, verses three and four. Things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us, we will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might, and the wonders that he has done. Notice that they heard it from their fathers. These are the same fathers 
who rejected God and ignored His commands. And I think, I think there are at least two encouragements that we can take from this. And first, we can trust that God's Word will not fail, even when we do. Despite Israel's repeated idolatry and wickedness, Jesus Christ still conquered sin and death. And this is true for us. Our failure does not thwart the mission of God. And this should be a reminder to those who actively rebel against God's Word. They will not succeed. Psalm 37 tells us that the wicked plot against the righteous and gnashes his teeth at him. But the Lord laughs at the wicked, for he sees that his day is coming. But this should also remind us that our own failures are not without the hope of rescue. Our sinful actions will not only be overcome by the will of God, but our sinful hearts are dealt with as well. As Paul proclaimed to the men of Israel in his sermon in Acts, Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. When you fail at home, when you lose your temper, or you ignore your parental duties, or you disrespect your parents, repent, turn away from your sin, and seek forgiveness. A broken and contrite heart God will not despise. And then move forward. Respond to God's forgiveness with obedience. And this is step three. Step one, come to worship and hear God's word. Step two, tell your children. Step three is keep his commandments. Listen to the final three verses of our text. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children, that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children, so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. First, I want to point out that the word testimony refers to the law, specifically the Ten Commandments which are called the two tables of testimony. So we're not talking about a subjective testimony on one hand and then an objective law on the other hand. Both of these things are objective. There is something here which the Israelites must obey as part of their covenantal relationship with God, the law and the testimony. But I also want to point out that there is an interesting play on words here in this passage. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel. These two words, established and then appointed, are very similar in the Hebrew. Kum and sum. So he kumed a testimony in Jacob and sumed a law in Israel. Both of these words appear later in this passage. And we miss it in our English translations. But in verse 6, the word arise is the same word for establish. And then in verse 7, the word set is the same word for appoint. So why did God whom a testimony in Jacob and sum a law in Israel? So that it will be taught to the next generation, so that they may whom and tell them to their children, and so that they should sum their hope in God. 
Kum and sum are also architectural terms. So in the context of Psalm 78, this would remind the Israelites of the temple and why it was built. It was, lead, it was to lead them to repentance, and their response should be worship and obedience. And then for us, it should remind us of the true temple, the chief cornerstone, the firm foundation of our hope. Hope. This is ultimately what this psalm is about. The four weeks of Advent, beginning today and lasting until Christmas Eve, have traditionally been divided up into four themes. Hope, joy, love, and peace. And we begin with hope. Specifically, the hope of Israel, who waited and longed for their Messiah. It's no coincidence that the historic church has set this day up as the first day of the church calendar. We begin with hope, and then for four weeks we anticipate the coming of Jesus. And I don't know if this was intentional, but this matches up well with how long Israel hoped. 4,000 years. A thousand years for every week. Asaph's psalm only covers 480 years from the Exodus to King David. But the anticipation was much longer. It began in the garden when God promised that the offspring of Eve would one day crush the head of the serpent. And then it lasted until that night in Bethlehem when the shepherds saw angels in the heavens singing glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Now this hope is not simply a longing for rescue as a princess locked in a tower longs for her knight in shining armor to come. Though that is an element of it. Those old fairy tales are on to something. I stress the old fairy tales. Um, but it's more than that. Hope is baked into the duties of God's people. This is precisely what Asaph tells us. Teach the law of God to your children so that they will set their hope in God and not forget His works but keep His commandments. Hope is not just a feeling. It's active. It looks a certain way. It's patient. It's plotting. And it's purposeful. And this is hard to hear sometimes. But it's necessary. It's good for us. This is how the church matures and how the nations are discipled. One step at a time, one Sunday at a time. We're witnessing an interesting time in the church right now. In the wake of COVID and cultural compromising, many have seen that something needs to be done, right? And they're eager to do it. But they want it to happen right now. So they grow impatient. And they start blaming their brothers and sisters in Christ when things aren't done their way. And they're quick to abandon a church because it's not moving fast enough for them. Or they adopt questionable tactics because they appear to be clever, or they promise quick results, or they're fashionable in certain circles. But the Lord rewards patience. He rewards endurance. We are moving toward a great feast, but it takes a lot of preparation. Didn't we just witness this last week? The Thanksgiving feast takes time. Grocery shopping for food, digging up old recipes and discovering new ones, prepping and marinating the turkey, peeling potatoes, washing vegetables, cleaning the house, decorating, baking and smoking and roasting, 
coordinating with other family members to make sure all the scrumptious dishes are accounted for, making sure someone made the lima beans for that one aunt who likes them, and making sure that there are plenty of fresh-baked rolls to go around a couple of times. And it's then and only then that friends and family gather together, give thanks, and feast. And this should remind us of the Christian life. (laughs) thought I'd be able to get through this, but... You know, as my family and I have been preparing to move to Huntsville and serve the church there, I've reflected on my theological education, the classes I've taken, the numerous books I've read and articles I've read, the papers I've written, the countless lectures and sermons I've listened to. And it's all beneficial. But it would be worthless without the weekly participation of covenant renewal worship. For 18 years and 15 years here at St. Mark, week after week, I have been shaped and molded by the faithful preaching and teaching of God's Word. I have confessed my sins with my brothers and sisters in Christ. I have heard every week that Jesus loves me and accepts me. I have sung psalms and hymns. I have prayed. I have tithed and I have dined at the Lord's table. And then I am sent home to love my wife and disciple my children and serve my neighbors often poorly, but knowing that I would come back the next week and do it all again. And God has been faithful. Right now, God's faithfulness leads us to Huntsville. But this applies to everybody. It applies to moms with young children. And it applies to you men, jobs that are hard to deal with. We we deal with things all through our life, but this is where... We are trained to do it well. Patient, plotting, and purposeful. That's what we do, week in and week out. And every time the Lord prepares a table for us, bread and wine, this is truly a Thanksgiving feast. Coming to this table is setting our hope in God. And it's setting our children's hope in God. Part of our preparation for the great feast, the marriage supper of the Lamb, is getting to participate in this feast. It's sort of like sneaking deviled eggs before Thanksgiving dinner. Except we don't have to sneak it. We're called to this. This is what hope looks like. We know that the Lord will keep His promises, and so we come. He will bless our obedience. And He will be a God to our children. Christian policies will be enacted. Christian businesses will be established. Christian nations will arise. And it will happen. It can only, only happen because the church gathers for worship. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in Him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.